Good morning. You have a good Thanksgiving? Show of hands, don't be ashamed. How many of you went out Black Friday shopping? You're ashamed. You're like, get your hands up. I'm too scared. That's the only reason I wouldn't do that. I'm fearful you guys have far more courage uh, than I do. I hope you did have a good time. Hey, if you're a guest, um, we're just glad that you're here with us this morning, and we would love to get you connected to our church here at New Hope, um, and there's a lot of ways to do that. Uh, one of the ways is that white card that you see in the seat in front of you. So it should be a white card, and let me kind of explain this a little bit. It's been a little confusing. Um, we want everyone to fill that card out. Uh, if you're a regular attender, if you're a member of our church, or this is your first time, and, he, and here's why. If you're a first-time guest, we'd love to get you connected around here. And so finding out a little bit about you helps us get you connected to our church. We believe church is far more than a seat on a Sunday watching a stage. And so we'd love to get you connected. If you're a regular attender or a member, um, our leadership really believes in shepherding the people that are a part of our church. And so when you fill that out, you just put your name on it, if we already have your information. And what that allows us to do is allows us to know that you're here. In addition to that, you can put a prayer request on the back side of that card or put an area of the church that you're interested in learning more information about. And what happens is Saturday morning, our elders, every Saturday morning we get together for Bible study and prayer. And we can pray over those prayer requests. And so if you want to write that on there. At the end of our service, we're going to have a time of offering where the trays are passed around. You just put that card in the offering tray. It really helps us out in our church office. So take a moment to do that. It'll help you get connected here at the church. In addition to that, you can jump on the website, send us a message. We would love nothing more than to connect you uh, here at New Hope. Uh, a couple other housekeeping items just to fill you in on. One is our annual meeting. It's our annual congregational meeting. It's taking place December the 11th at 5 p.m. here at the church. And so you can go in the back, uh, out these back doors, if you're a member of our church, you can get a ballot. And on that ballot, you're going to be voting uh, to affirm our elder candidates and uh, for some other offices. You grab that. There's also a sheet out there that will uh, introduce you to the, the two elder candidates as well. Uh, be praying for them. And then you bring that back in person at the annual meeting, um, and you can submit that. We want to encourage, though, anybody at New Hope to come to that meeting, uh, because a lot of reasons. One, you can hear a lot about um, the church and what's going on, but we're going to celebrate in a big way all that God did in 2016 uh, for us as a church and look forward to 2017. So mark your calendars December 11th. And lastly, next week, we're going to launch into a brand new series, uh, a Christmas series that will lead us up to our Christmas services and uh, we're really excited about that, that whole series, but ultimately that Christmas service. Uh, be praying. Uh, plans are that the new lobby area will be opened for Christmas Eve. And so look online, find the Christmas services, be praying for that. It's a great time of the year to invite a neighbor, someone who might not know Jesus. And we're going to be very intentional uh, at all of those services to present with clarity uh, the message of the gospel. So just be uh, prepared for that. Now today, we're going to finish a series on the book of Nehemiah. So if you have a Bible, you can turn it on or open it up to Nehemiah chapter 13. And we're going to camp out there for a little bit this morning. We're going to finish this series. Uh, and really what we're going to do is kind of take an overview of the book and kind of learn some pretty practical, valuable things. For those of us that say that we follow Jesus, one of the temptations, one of the, the dangers in your everyday walk with Jesus is this spiritual drifting that can take place. Now you drift further and further from Jesus without even recognizing it. And spiritual drifting is a lot like, like physically drifting away from something. It kind of happens slowly. You don't always recognize it, but it does take place. I grew up in South Florida on the beach. And so uh, literally the beach was the hangout for us. And I know that's very mean to talk about on a morning like this morning. But uh, we would go out all the time. And I have all kinds of memories of me and my friends 
getting out into the water about waist deep, and we'd throw a football, and you'd do all kinds of fun stuff, and you'd be throwing the football, and uh, 30 minutes would turn into 45 minutes, and finally we're like, all right, I'm tired of throwing the football, I want to go back in, and as you head into shore, you realize oftentimes we're about a quarter mile from where we started, and so now in our frustration, we have to come out of the water and walk down the beach just to get back to where we'd set up all of our stuff. And if you've been to the ocean, if you've been to the beach, you kinda, you've experienced this drifting that you don't even notice it's happening because you're so distracted, you're just uh, doing all kinds of different things, and before you know it, you're up to a quarter mile, sometimes even longer, from where you started on the beach. I had a friend one time uh, who went surfing. Again, I know that's not nice to talk about <laughs> this morning, but he went surfing in Costa Rica. He took this surf trip, he went to Costa Rica. And uh, this happens a lot when you're surfing. You drift quite a bit. And so he made the mistake of leaving his stuff on the shore, get, getting out in the ocean, and he's surfing. And uh, he looks up and realizes he had drifted so far down the beach, but when he looks at his stuff, he sees some local thieves going through all of his gear and just stealing his stuff. And there was nothing he could do to get to him, like yelling and screaming. But by the time he gets on his board and he gets to the shore... He's got to run uh, all kinds of distance just to get to these guys who were already gone because they kept their eye out for Americans that would come and surf and drift. And then they would look where they left their stuff, and they were a prime target. You see, this is the kind of thing that happens when you drift. If you don't pay attention to home base, the place where you set up shop, before you know it, you're so far away from it uh, that you have to hike to get back to it or something's getting messed up, something's wrong. Uh, you drift. And the same thing is true spiritually. You know, before you know it, your kid's schedule, uh, your school schedule, your work schedule, you've got all kinds of things and distractions that are going on in your life. And before you know it, these distractions, you look up and you realize, man, I haven't opened my Bible. I've drifted so far from where God had me. I haven't opened my Bible in weeks, months, even longer. I haven't been to church consistently. I haven't been to my discipleship group. I'm I'm so disconnected from what God's doing, and I didn't even realize it was happening. Because slowly we begin to drift spiritually from the very things that God has called us to do and the way that God has called us to live. This is a big, prominent truth in the book of Nehemiah. We open this book, and we begin to read Nehemiah's story. You kind of see how God set up home base for this people and how they slowly begin to drift away from it. And Nehemiah has to come back and call them to it. Now, if you've been with us in this series... You know Nehemiah's story a little bit, but let's backtrack just a touch. When we are introduced to Nehemiah, we learn that this kid is about 800 miles away from his people. But he knows they're his people because he is connected to them both ethnically and religiously. But he doesn't actually physically know them. But he's 800 miles away. For him, 800 miles away is in the palace of the king of Persia, Artaxerxes. And he's in the palace, and he's the cupbearer. And so he's got all this prestige, he's got all this power, he's got all this influence. Things are going really well for him. But he hears that his people who were captive in exile had been released from exile. And now they've moved back to their city. And when they arrived on the scene of their city, everything's left in rubble. I mean, the walls are torn down. It's just a desolate place. Well, What we learn when we open up Nehemiah chapter 1 is that that put a burden on the heart of Nehemiah. And what we track with throughout this book, and one of the lessons that I've learned in a profound way in studying and preaching through this book, is that God's people are all called to have that same burden for the suffering people in our world. We are called to have empathy and compassion for all people that are suffering, especially our people, other believers that are suffering. And God wants us with that burden, that empathy and that compassion to be people of 
prayer and people of action. So that's what Nehemiah does. He begins to pray. Then he gets permission from the king to go back to the people. And so he arrives on the scene. And when he gets on the scene, he's kind of heartbroken. He scouts everything. He gathers the people. And in one of the most incredible displays in all of history of good leadership, he gets all of the people organized and rallied around this vision he has of rebuilding these walls. Nehemiah had a longer-term vision, but that's what he cast to them. And so despite the opposition, both externally, people not wanting these walls to be rebuilt, and internally, leading stubborn people who fight with one another, which never happens in the church today. But anyway, they gather everybody together. They rebuild the walls in record time. And then right around chapters 8 and 9, as we were studying through this, we learned Nehemiah shifts his attention, and he invites Ezra to come in, and Ezra comes in, and now the physical walls are rebuilt, and Ezra begins to bring all of the attention to rebuilding the spiritual walls of God's people. And how does he do that? He brings out God's word. And now he begins to teach and read God's word to all of the people. And they're cut to the heart. I mean, they are just convicted by this, so much so that they start to change all kinds of things in their lives, and they kind of rally their lives under the authority of God's word, ultimately culminating in chapter 10, verse 39, where they make this proclamation because of the teaching of God's word. We, as a people, will not neglect the house of our God. The question is, what did that mean for them? Well, for them, that was a, partly a physical location where they set up a place where people would come and, and God's presence would be and they would worship God. And so that's what Nehemiah does. He sets up statutes and ordinances and, and he sets up all these systems to support that practice. And their goal was to keep that place holy, to rally people around it, to point people to God for God's glory. So Nehemiah says, hey, my work here is done. And so Nehemiah heads back, and we're about to read here in just a moment in chapter 13, he heads back to the palace. And he begins to serve again as the cupbearer to the king, only to find out that while he's gone, the people slowly begin to drift. And home base was God. And here's the thing about God, church. God doesn't move. God doesn't change. God doesn't drift away from us. It is us who drift away from him. And this is the same thing that happened in the time of Nehemiah. They begin to slowly drift away from God. And Nehemiah hears about this and now has to come back to the people and call them to repentance, to come back from where they had drifted and reconnect with their home base, with God. I'm convinced if you take the very things that they struggled with that created in their life a spiritual drift and you place it over any period in church history, including today, in 2016, the church... God's people still struggle with these things and drift away from him because of that struggle. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at Nehemiah in chapter 13 and really the whole book, and we're going to look at what are two dominant things that God's people really, even without noticing it, begin to struggle with and drift away from God. What are two of those things? And I'm convinced, because it's been true in my life this whole week, that you're going to see, man, that's been a struggle for me too. Like, I can relate to that, man. I don't even notice it all the time. You might even say, I'm actually there. I'm a quarter mile down the beach. And then I didn't even realize that I'd been drifting this whole time. And then we're going to shift our attention. We're going to look at three ways in which Nehemiah can teach us to prevent uh, spiritual drifting and, and really call us back from having already drifted. So the first way that Nehemiah's people drifted away from God, and really one of the first ways that we drift away from God, is in our pursuit of holiness. We drift away from our pursuit of holiness. Let's see how this plays out for Nehemiah. 
Chapter 13, beginning in verse 6. While this was taking place, so while this drifting was taking place, while this temptation for the people to give in to certain things was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, the same king he was serving at the time in Persia, I went to the king. And after some time, we don't know how long, but after some time of serving again as his cupbearer, I asked leave of the king. And I came to Jerusalem and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the court of the house of God. And I was angry. And I threw all of the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with a grain offering and the frankincense. So Nehemiah had finished his work. He heads back. He's comfortable again, living his normal life. He's, he hears some bad news. He heads back to Jerusalem, and he finds that the people had drifted away from God. They're a quarter mile down the beach. They're in the water. They don't even recognize where they're at right now. And he wants to bring their attention to say, look how far you've drifted. You've got to get back to where God has called you to live because this is the best way for you to live your life, to bring God glory and to bring yourself personal fulfillment. And so that's his goal. But when he arrives on the scene, he sees that Tobiah, and if you remember in this series, let me just fill you in, Tobiah's a thorn in the side. I mean, he's the guy, if you're watching a movie, you just want him to be taken out, like something fall on him, please, something. He's so annoying. In chapter 6, he actually began to spread rumors, right? A first... A, 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 a gossip. 800 years before Jesus arrives, they still struggled with gossiping. And he, he begins to continually spread rumors and become a false prophet and get people to not listen to Nehemiah. So Nehemiah silenced that. He overcame that. He's gone. But as soon as Nehemiah leaves, Tobiah recognizes his opportunity. And he kind of slowly comes in and he distracts the people, gets their eyes off of God. And they slowly begin to drift. And he builds relational equity. And over time, he begins to convince them, hey, we don't really need these things in, in this place that you guys set up, and let's just move these things out, and I'm going to put like my, my, my king-size bed over there, I want my dresser there, let's just set up shop for me in this place. And for whatever reason, they gave in. And so now they drifted so far, and Nehemiah comes on the scene and says, what in the world is going on? And we ask ourselves, how do you do that? How would you allow Tobiah to move all of God's stuff out, move all of his own stuff in? Why would you let that happen? And yet, I'm convinced we still battle with that same thing. In our own hearts, those of us who follow Jesus, we've allowed him to set up shop, and yet, over a period of time, we allow other things to creep in and influence us and distract us away from the holiness, the holy living. By holiness, I mean set apart for God. That's all it means. We're set apart. We're different. Because of Jesus, we are holy and set apart for God. But we allow ourselves to be entertained with certain things. And here's the thing. Most of the time, it's like morally neutral things. Morally neutral things that we allow to entertain our hearts and they begin to distract us. And before we know it, we, something brings us to our senses and we look back and we think, I didn't think that was such a big deal, but look how far I've drifted. And these very things have influenced my life and pushed me further away from God. One of those things this past week I had to recognize in my own life. Um, I was on social media quite a bit here recently, and I read um, a lot of political posts. I don't know if I'd call them posts, maybe more temper tantrums. Um, and I read through the temper tantrums, and it began to put thoughts in my mind. And I thought, no big deal. I'm, I'm just you know, reading these things, taking this all in. And I began to read other posts and other things, theological, all kinds of stuff through social media. 
I read into things tone of voice that may or may not have been there. I found myself drawing conclusions that may or may not have been there. I found myself fantasizing about arguing against certain people and pointing out certain things and defeating certain arguments. And before I knew it, I looked back and I realized, look how far I've drifted from the life God's actually called me to live. The life where he's called me to love these people, not fantasize about arguing with them. So I had to repent of that and just, just a couple days ago really uh, pray through it and talk to some people and decided I'm deleting all social media off of my phone. Because for me, it was always on my phone. I'm checking it and reading it. Look, that's not everybody's struggle. But for me, this morally neutral thing was pushing me further and further away from God and I had to make a decision. Do I want to continue to drift or do I want to stop the drifting and get back to home base? And so I had to eliminate these things. Now I have a cell phone that's actually pretty much a phone. And that's it. It's really weird. And what you notice is when you go back, you have like muscle memory, your thumb twitches. So you're like sitting there and you're like, I gotta check something that's not on my phone anymore. Like you, you find yourself getting frustrated, but it had to happen. And this is Nehemiah's struggle on a much larger scale. The people had drifted so far, they didn't realize how far they'd come. And maybe for you, let me ask you this question How are you doing in holiness? It's kind of a confusing, weird question. So let me ask you this way. How far do you think you've drifted from living the life God's maybe called you to live? You see certain things you've allowed into your mind and into your heart that may have influenced you to just drift slowly and slowly and slowly, and before you know it, you look back and you're further along than you thought you ever were. You see, this is the problem Nehemiah felt. But that's not the only one. The second struggle that his people had that I think you can place on any period in church history, and all Christians for all ages have struggled with this, is not only drifting away from personal holiness, but drifting away from biblical authority. So let's see how this plays out in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 10, he says this, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did all the work had fled to, their, to his field. So I confronted the officials and I said this question, why is the house of God forsaken? Now here's the thing, the wording of that question connects you back to chapter 10, verse 39, where they made a commitment based on their understanding of God's word. And by that, I mean they read God's word, they came to understand what it meant, and they obeyed it. And so when they obeyed it, they then made a commitment. We will not forsake the house of our God. Nehemiah comes on the scene, sees how far they've drifted from their understanding of God's word, and he asks this profound question. Why is God's house forsaken? The very thing you made a commitment not to do, you've done. It's like he's asking it this way. You knew what God's word taught. You came to an understanding of it. You made a commitment to allowing the Bible, God's word, to be the authority over your life, and now all of a sudden you've drifted from that. Why is it that you've drifted from that? It's a profound question, but it's a hard one to ask in our culture. And the more and more I spend time with people, the more and more I understand this. It's very difficult to talk about the Bible being the ultimate authority in your life because we live in a culture that really buds up against the idea of authority. We don't like the idea of anything having authority in my life or telling me what to do. Yeah, I mean, some of my earliest memories, maybe some of you will remember this. Uh, I remember as a young kid, anytime somebody other than my parents, and, and honestly, including them, but I couldn't say this to them, but w- when an authority figure would come to me and tell me to do something, all the kids my, at that time in my life, would, we'd always respond with this corny line, you ain't my mama. <laughs> you guys remember that? You, you ain't my mommy. You can't tell me what to do. You're not my dad. Don't tell me what to do. And from a really early age, I just remember always bucking up against the idea of authority. Like I was actually listening to my mom, which I wasn't, right? But I, I used that as a way to get out of listening to anybody else. 
And so I've, I just, earliest memories, remember all my friends, we just kind of, we're always against this idea of authority. And I've watched that multiply and, and get bigger and bigger as I've gotten older. We have a hard time, our culture has a really hard time with the idea of you allowing anything to have authority over you. And so then when in church, you come into church and we talk about the Bible being the ultimate authority in your life, it's great when you're in a room like this, but is it great when you're sitting in your office at work and when you're with your friends at that cookout? And when you're with your family at that big Thanksgiving dinner, is it that easy when, when all of the temptation that is surrounding you every place except for this place right here comes speaking into your life, encouraging you to not let that be your authority? Is it that easy when the culture around you says, if you obey what the Bible teaches, you're a bigot? You're a horrible person? You're judgmental? When the whole time you're just trying to obey what the Lord has called you to obey, in grace and truth. Don't forget the grace part of that. We're just trying to allow the... Now, if you can't handle that, it's going to be really hard when you walk out of here to allow it to be your authority. But not just that. We are bombarded in our culture with all kinds of influences and resources to tell us the Bible may be a truth, but it can't be the truth. There's so many other avenues for you to find truth and improve your life and find peace. And so that's the culture we live in. So you come into a place like this and we say, hey, the Bible should be the ultimate authority in your life. You're like, well, maybe. The culture's like, maybe, but it's one of many. And by the way, why should anything have authority over you? You're your own person. So we, we have this big, difficult thing that we're up against. And before you know it, people begin to listen to that and allow certain thoughts and other influences into your life. And, and the way we like to say it is you, you listen to the wrong voices. And before you know it, you're drifting and drifting and drifting. And you look back and you realize, I'm a, I'm a quarter mile down the beach. I didn't realize that I'd, I drifted that far away from the biblical authority I'd made this great commitment to. See, the Bible talks about this, about itself. In Jeremiah chapter 23, God knew this issue was going to plague us. And in Jeremiah 23, he says this in verse 16. Thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. And what he means is all the other voices that we struggle with even to this day, they fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says, you will have peace. And all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say, no harm will come to you. So it's like, it's not a big deal. You don't have to listen to the Bible. You don't have to obey the Bible. God will still love you. God will still have, you'll still experience peace. You can find personal fulfillment in all these other sources. This is why I get really nervous like really scared when I see people listening to certain preachers on television that, that talk about health and wealth and, and that if you're just, that God always wants you healthy and wealthy when that's nowhere in the Bible. And I watch people read all these different authors and, and, and allow all these different self-help authors to speak into their lives when, when that's nowhere in the scriptures. Nowhere found in the Bible. And before you know it, you have well-meaning sometimes, other times not so well-meaning Christians drifting further and further away from biblical truth. And here's the thing. I'm the guy who sits in the office and welcomes broken child and broken marriage and broken family over and over and over again. Why? Because people have allowed themselves to drift further and further away from biblical truth and allowing the Bible to be the ultimate authority in their life. And I'm not saying this to be uh, uh, some lord over you and just press into you. I'm saying it because it breaks my heart. The amount of marriages that are under attack, not just in this church, but in this county and in this state and in this country. The amount of families that are broken because people think they can find their own truth apart from what God has taught. 
Because people think it's not a big deal to sway and drift away from what God teaches. Because people think that they can obey some of what God says, but not all of it. And before they know it, they drift further and further and further away from him. And it's heartbreaking. It's not about legalism. It's about, it's breaking hearts and ruining lives and destroying families and marriages. And this is what Nehemiah saw. You're drifting so far from what God called you to do. And it's not about legalism and rules. It's about God knows the best way for you to live. And he's gifted you with it in his word. And so we drift. We drift away from personal pursuit of holiness. We drift away from allowing the scriptures to be the ultimate authority in our lives. So what do we do with that? Because look, when you walk out of here today, you have a very real enemy. And that enemy is going to make it really easy for you to drift. He's going he's to put everything that you need in your path to make decisions and justify decisions to allow you to drift further and further away from your pursuit of personal holiness, the kind of living God wants you to live, and your personal pursuit of allowing the Bible to be the ultimate authority in your life. He'll make it really easy, I promise. And it'll seem really difficult to get back to home base, this unmovable, unchanging, loving God. So how do you do it? Well, Nehemiah gives us three things that I want to focus on that will help us prevent spiritual drifting, but at the same time, it won't just help us prevent it. If you're already there, getting back to these truths can get you back to home base. And the first way is this. We prevent spiritual drifting by placing a value on God's purposes over our personal preferences. Nehemiah modeled this. You remember in Nehemiah chapter 1 where he begins to think, I can't just have this burden in my heart. I actually have to go to these people and help them rebuild the wall. He was scared to death. He was terrified. He had to go to the king and make this profound request. And the text tells us he was so scared that while speaking the words to the king, he was begging God for the words to say. He was terrified. But he put his own personal preferences aside for the purposes of God. He said, this is not, God's purposes are more important than my preferences. So I'm going to put my preference aside and I'm going to go. Now, imagine with me in chapter 13 when he has to go back to the king for the second time. The second time he has to go before the king, that same king that just gave him all this permission to go and rescue these people. He has to come before the king and now he has to say, hey, um, it didn't work. (laughs) I tried all the resources. That was cool. I got to go again. Imagine how terrifying that was. How much he would have preferred to say, I did my job. The walls are rebuilt. I read God's word. I did what I was supposed to do. I'm staying in the palace. No, but for a second time, he said, my personal preferences are not nearly as important as the purposes of God. And so he puts his preferences aside and he goes, now here's the thing about this. There's nothing wrong with having preferences. We have preferences in everything in our life. You have preferences in your personal life about how you conduct yourself within your marriage, how you do parenting. You have preferences about how you decorate your home, how you keep your house, what people you allow in and out of your house, what friends you keep. You have preferences when you come to church about the way the building you think it should look, the way the music should be, the way the preaching should or shouldn't be. You have all kinds of preferences, and the preferences in and of themselves, they're not bad. But when you put your preferences above God's purposes, you begin to drift. When the focus of your life becomes my preferences, what I want, what I think, over and above the purposes that God has for your life. And can I tell you one of God's main primary purposes? God's, one of God's, the, the heartbeat of God is that none should perish, but all should come to a saving relationship with Jesus. And when we put our preferences above making decisions that allow us to reach more people, we drift. 
God's heart is that none should perish, but that all should know who Jesus is. And that should play out in this church. That should play out in your personal life. Look, my family, we have to make decisions all the time about putting our personal preferences aside for the purposes of God. And I struggle with one of them. I'll be honest with you. My, every Wednesday, my wife is really good about allowing all these kids into our house. There are some Wednesdays when I pull into the driveway and I think to myself, I just want to be home. And I don't want any of these 177 kids running through my house. I just want to be here without all of this. And I walk in, and there are times when this is loud, and I've had this long day, and I just want to throw a kid, but I don't. <laughs> I don't. I come in, and I think to myself, man, you got to put your personal preferences aside for the purposes of God. These kids need Jesus, and your home is the only place some of them are getting it. And so you got to... Now, that's going to play out in your life in a lot of ways. Sometimes, what about marriage? I love talking to young people thinking about getting married. They're like, oh, I think I found this great person. I'm going to get married. I'm thinking, are you putting your preferences aside for the purposes of God? God wants you to marry within the family. He wants you to marry someone else who's a believer. He does not want you marrying someone who's not a believer. But Rob, you don't understand. I met this girl. She's so pretty, and she's so kind, and she's so nice, and her mom actually likes me. This is great. I think to myself, good for you. That's all good. But are you prepared to put your personal preferences under the lordship and direction of Jesus' purposes? What about in your personal finances? How you conduct and give and, and focus your money as a family? I know you have preferences and you think about retirement, you think about purchases. All these things are good. They are. I think about those things. It's good. But when God has a purpose for it, are you ready to put your preference aside for his purposes? You fill in the blank. See, one of the best ways to prevent or reverse spiritual drifting is to put our personal preferences under the lordship and leadership of Jesus' purposes. The second way to prevent or reverse spiritual drifting is by committing ourselves and our families to biblical authority. See, Nehemiah called all the people in chapters 8 and 9 to not only hear the word of God, but he had people stationed all throughout the crowd to not just hear it, but they explained it, and they, they told everybody. They made sure everybody there understood with clarity, this is what God means, this is what God is saying. And then they made such a bold and big commitment. I mean, they changed everything. There was this scene after chapters 8 and 9 where they read, we got to do this festival of booths, this tents. And so they had to go home, and then they had to build these tents and these booths on the roofs of their homes and in other places and celebrate. And have. And I'm sure some of them were thinking, I showed up. I got plans, man. I did not plan on having to go and build this tent and participate in all this stuff. But when they came under the conviction that this is what God's word taught, they said, I'll do it because it's what it teaches And this is the best way to live because I now understand what it means. Again, this is a difficult one. We're in a tough spot because God's word is not always easy to obey. It's not. It gets difficult. And our enemy makes it really easy to drift away from obeying God's word, from reading it, from understanding it, and from making the necessary changes to align ourselves with what God's word teaches. It's not always easy. It's not always fun in our lives. And before you know it, you haven't read his word, you haven't been in his word, you haven't listened to other people teach his word. And what you put in inevitably will come out. And if you're drifting further from him and not putting his word in your mind and heart, what you are putting in will inevitably come out. And you'll realize how far you've drifted from God's word. And God stops his people consistently in the Bible. And he says, my word is sufficient. It's all you need. You don't need to go looking for all these other resources. Here's a test that I do for every piece of content I put in. I say this, and I encourage you to do the same, whether it's a podcast you listen to, 
uh, someone on TV, a book that you're reading, uh, an article that you, you've read that's been published. Listen, I ask this. Does this person who's trying to get me to find peace and fulfillment, do they ultimately, in any way, shape, or form, they ultimately lead me to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ? Because if they don't, it's not right. It's not right. You can learn some things from it, but it's not the truth that you bank your life on, you bank your marriage on, you bank your parenting on. That's not a truth. If it doesn't lead to repentance and to Jesus, don't bank your life on it. It's simple. You want to raise good kids? Raise kids that understand that the Bible is the ultimate authority in their life. You want a good marriage? Get back to reading God's word together. That is how we, we have fulfillment in this life and we reconnect to the purposes that God has for our life. No other truth, no other content is worth banking your life on. In the same chapter in Jeremiah, God says this, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock in pieces? What he's saying is, my word does everything. It it pierces through the heart. It reveals motives. And then it takes those things that have drifted far from God. You might think, Rob, you don't understand. Our marriage is so far from where it should be. And God says, my word is sufficient to bring your marriage back in alignment with my word. You don't understand, I haven't been a good parent. I've raised these kids, it may be too late. God's word is sufficient to tell you it's not too late to realign your life, values, parenting, family, and everything else back with what God has called you to do. And this is what Nehemiah does. He comes back on the scene, he says, what are you doing? And he calls them to repentance. And it's a pretty intense chapter, and at the end of the chapter, it just kind of ends with, we're getting back to what God said. I don't care what anything else is going on in my life. I'm going back to what the word of God says, and that's what we're going to do. And that's what he leads them to. Our third thing to prevent and reverse spiritual drifting is this. Spiritual drifting is prevented with gospel-focused or gospel-centered community. One of the prominent lessons in the entire book of Nehemiah for this whole sermon series is how Nehemiah gathered the people together and how willing the people were to do the part of the job that they had to do to hang up the gate, to clean up the garbage, to build that part of the wall and that part of the wall. And there was this incredible unity that came from community that was focused on God. And the church is called to do the same thing. We are called to be a part, to be centered, to be focused together in community. There is growth that you will never experience on your own. I mean, I've heard for years this idea, oh, I love Jesus and I want to have a relationship with Jesus, but I don't need the church. That's garbage and it needs to be thrown out. Here's the deal. If you called me one day and you said, Rob, we want to have you over for dinner. Man, we love having you over for dinner. It's so much fun to be around. I'd, man, I'd feel good. I'd be like, yeah, I want to come over for dinner. Who's cooking? If it's, if it's you, no. But if it's your wife, yeah, I'll come over for dinner. It would be a lot of fun. That would be great. And then you said, yeah, but here's, here's the deal, man. Uh, we don't want that crazy wife of yours. Like, she's just annoying. We don't like her. You just leave her at home. We're not going to get along. I'm going to choke you. All right? That's not cool. You don't get me without my bride. That's just the way it happens. And God declares the same thing. God says, you don't get me without my bride. You don't get me without the church. The church is my plan A. That's my bride. I died for my bride. You don't get me without my bride. And Nehemiah knew the same thing. It's the people of God coming together for the glory of God. We're called to do the same. I'm convinced after 10 years in vocational ministry, 15 years of following Jesus with my life, there's no more loving thing that one person can do for another than call them out on their sin. Now that sounds weird and it's hard, and many of us are like, I do that all the time in my passive-aggressive way, but I'm talking in a very bold manner. I see you drifting. 
because of these tendencies in your life. And I want to reach my hand out and pull you back from drifting in alignment with what God teaches. There's no more loving thing that you can do for someone. I spent uh, some hours in a tree stand this past week, and I hadn't done that very much. And so I'm in this tree stand with my best friend in the world, and we got to do in person what we normally do via FaceTime or Skype. And we're sitting there in that tree stand, and I didn't realize how many hours you sit in a tree stand before anything happens. And we took advantage of those hours, and we began to confess our sin. And we began to pray with one another and to seek counsel and advice to realign our lives with what the Word of God teaches. And I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that if you're not connected to a church and other believers, I believe that you're walking in disobedience. I didn't say that you weren't saved. I just think you're walking in disobedience. God wants you connected to other believers for his glory and your fulfillment. And Nehemiah calls the people back to living like this. And so church, my question is this. When you walk out of this place today, your enemy's real. And we pray, I mean, I pray for this church so much because I love you guys. And I know the enemy's gonna attack and when he does, he's gonna make it really easy for you to drift. My question for you is, what are you going to do to prevent or reverse drifting? Are you going to submit your preferences under his purposes? Are you going to realign and recommit you and your family to the Bible, God's word being your ultimate authority in all things? And will you take that step of commitment to getting plugged into a gospel-centered, gospel-focused group of people that will help you from drifting? Drifting can be easy, but because of Jesus... It doesn't have to be your reality. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the truth. I I love this church. I love being here. I love the encouragement of brothers and sisters in Christ united, dedicated to following you. God, I'm so encouraged to know that because of Jesus, because he was willing to submit his preferences under your purposes, He defeated death, resurrected from the dead, ascended to the right hand of his Father. And he did that for us, and we're humbled, and we're encouraged. And Father, it's because of that truth we can be sent. And so thank you for that. And we offer our thanks in Jesus' name, amen.